0: Hi and welcome to episode 114 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives in art. I'm Maria Stolger and today I'm bringing you my conversation with Kim Lutwala. But before I do, I just want to send out a big hello to all my fellow Australians currently in lockdown. New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT are all grappling with Delta at the moment, as is most of the world. Uh, So I hope you're doing okay, And thanks for taking some time out in your day to listen to this episode. It's great to see lots of shows and events in the arts can be seen online, which includes the talk series I'm involved in, which was going to take place at the Art Gallery of New South Wales called The Artist Speaks. I'm really excited it's still going ahead as a live webinar and I'll be talking with four great artists over four Wednesdays. That's Abdul Abdullah, Jude Ray, Lucy Cullerton, and Tony Costa and there's a link on TalkingWithPainters.com in the show notes of this episode to book tickets or you can just go straight to the Art Gallery of New South Wales website and book there. And because it's a live webinar, you can get involved too with questions and comments, so I hope to see you there. I'm also doing a live Instagram show called Lockdown Live each week where I hop online and invite whoever's watching to join me for a chat. It's been really great talking with people about how they've been doing during lockdown and about their art. And I'm aiming to do the next Lockdown Live on Friday the 10th of September and I'll be posting more details about that closer to then on Instagram. Now, if you live in Sydney, it's possible to have seen Kim Lutwala's work without ever having set foot in a gallery. In 2019, her brilliant Archibald painting of TV presenter Faustina Agoli was one of the main paintings the Gallery of New South Wales used to promote the prize. It was on one of those huge banners hanging above the entrance of the gallery. It was on bus shelters around the city and newspaper ads, and it even appeared on the front cover of a magazine. She's been a finalist in the Archibald five out of the last seven years and her sitters have exclusively been people she admires from the queer community and these are the people she paints time and time again. She's got a very distinctive style where she uses bold colour to reflect the sitter's personality and uses an exciting combination of realism and abstraction. She also has a wonderfully positive personality, as you're going to hear, and she fully embraces technology, which she incorporates into her artwork in the most ingenious ways. She was born in the US, but has been living in Australia for the last nine years. She's won the Kate Larter Memorial Award, and she's been a regular finalist in many major art prizes and has exhibited widely across Australia and in the US. You can see all the works we talk about on the website, talkingwithpainters.com. We recorded this interview remotely during lockdown in Sydney, and I started by asking Kim how she's been during the latest Sydney lockdown.
1: The first couple of weeks, I was really into it, to be honest. I was like, God, there's so much time to paint. I've got all this extra energy, and I was thinking that, you know, it was going to be very short-lived, kind of like the last lockdown. But as the weeks kind of carried on, I sort of went through the emotional roller coaster of all the stages of grief. And in the last (laughs) couple of weeks, I've been sort of firmly planted in acceptance. So I'm I'm back to where I started feeling good about it and just trying to make the most of it. But man, there were some really, really tough days. Um, And I actually ended up emulating you a little bit because I started doing these Instagram live interviews with a lot of really fabulous artists (laughs) from around Australia, which was good fun. Um, But in those, we didn't really talk about art very much.
0: So we kind of went off the rails, but it was lots (laughs) of fun. Well, that's the best sort of conversations, I reckon. You know, they're just, they're, they're much more sort of casual. Yeah. How did you find live Instagram? I love it. I just think it's a really interesting way to
1: connect with people. Um, And, you know, you get to see sort of the statistics and the insights on them. And one of them had over 6000 views. (laughs) Like, Oh, my God, incredible. Maybe I should start doing this more. Um, But yeah, it was just a really... Really fun time and, and great to connect and to hear people's questions and and
0: sort of interact with the community in a different way. Yeah, yeah, true. And I mean everyone can probably hear that you have an American accent, so you you're from the originally from the US. Can you tell me a bit about where where you grew up and particularly interested in what people's memories of art as it you know, what memories they have of art when they were little?
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, it's interesting I didn't really grow up anywhere in Particular, so I was constantly moving around the country with my family. I went to two high schools, few middle schools, um, two universities, don't even know how many elementary schools, or I guess it's called primary school here. Yeah, Um, so I'm really from all over the place, but but some of my formative years I would say are in. Arizona, Connecticut, and Chicago, which of course are all extreme different <laughs> parts of the country. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really interesting place. I do have a soft spot in my heart for America, but I doubt that I'll ever go back. Um, but growing up, you know, I had my mom is a fabulous painter. She does a lot of landscapes and animal paintings, and my dad does a bit of sculpture, um, both just hobby artists, but I think they're both incredible. So they sort of raised my little sister and I to be quite creative and artistic, and I remember I used to you know trace drawings of Disney characters when I was quite young and then I started messing around with ceramics and printmaking and installations and, and I you know set up my my dolls and my toys in all kinds of weird kitschy installations <laughs> so I was sort of always creative but um, painting didn't actually come until my 20s so I presume you did art at school though I did, yeah. In high school, I I think it was ceramics was my first little intro. And ceramics is a great love of mine. Um, I actually studied it in university along with printmaking. Um, And I love drawing and, and all of that. But it wasn't until after I graduated from university from my first two degrees, and realized, hmm you really need a lot of equipment for, you know, like for a lithography, you need this gigantic (laughs) press that I no longer had access to and marble slabs and um, ceramics. You need a kiln and you need glazes and all of that. So my flatmate at the time actually taught me how to paint in our living room. And she is a fantastic artist, fantastic artist. Uh, and she doesn't she doesn't show any of her work to anyone. she just paints it for herself and does commissions here and there she's actually a nurse, so shout out to Andrea right now because she's going through it dealing with covid in uh in Phoenix but mm. it's i I just am so grateful to her for teaching me sort of the tricks of the trade and Then I decided to go back and study at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago for one year. And do my post back, which I think is in in Australia is called an honors, but yeah, it was, it was an incredible life changing year in Chicago, learning how to work with oil paint and acrylic and watercolor. And so for me, it was just like delving into a whole new world that was really really incredible and really difficult painting is really fucking hard sometimes um, so but true it's it's so much yeah, fun yeah. well you know <laughs> what
0: I find interesting is that when I was um, reading up about you I saw that you know when you left school you actually had got a scholarship to do an accounting degree
1: Yeah. can you tell me about that Oh my God. I love accounting. (laughs) And on tax day, I'm like, the first thing I do is do my taxes, which as I've gotten older and had more success becomes harder and harder because you see how much money you owe instead of how much you're (laughs) going to get back. But um, I do have this love of accounting. I don't know. It's a weird thing. I was a strange person in high school. Like I was captain of the cheerleading squad. I was in the homecoming court. I was in ceramics club. I was a stoner. I played flute in the band. I did theater. I was just kind of all over the place. And then, of course, had to fit accounting club in there too. Um, And it was great to get that scholarship, but I ended up not going to that university and just completely changing my mind and deciding that art history was the direction I wanted to go.
0: They seem like such opposite fields, but I can see how you can be attracted to both, actually. So tell me, you came to Australia in 2012. Can you tell me about that move? Um, What brought you here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I actually came across for work, and it was supposed to be for two years. It was a two-year contract. And when I arrived in Australia, um, it it was a choice between going to Melbourne or Sydney. And the company kind of made the choice that they would put me in Sydney. And I'm so glad that they did. I love Melbourne so much, but I am a beach baby and I love going (laughs) hiking in the bush. So um, it ended up being a perfect fit to be in Sydney. And I just, you know, I fell in love with Australia. So I, I really don't foresee myself going back to the U S at least definitely not anytime soon. Um, but I could also see myself
0: living in Spain or, you know, elsewhere in the world. So who
1: knows, who knows what the future holds,
0: but we'll see. It's so interesting also that, you know, within three years of coming to Australia, you were shortlisted in the Archibald prize. Uh, yeah. Which is, you know, for you know, people probably hear me talk about the Archibald all the time, but it's, you know, our most well-known uh, portrait prize here in Australia, and not only that, but in the last seven Archibald prizes, you've been finalist in five of them. That's that must be that must just feel uh, amazing. Yeah, honestly, the the whole Archibald thing
1: has been such a wild ride because you know I. I started entering it because I thought it was so amazing that there's a prize that, you know, so many people across the country care about and that people who don't typically care about art get really caught up in. And there's, you know, you can go on sports bet, and (laughs) you know, and make place bets on who's going to win. And I've actually won a couple of times, which is (laughs) very exciting insider knowledge. No, I didn't have insider knowledge, but you can kind of, you know, assess once you understand the game, you can kind of assess who's probably going to win. Um, but yeah, I, I honestly, I entered the first time thinking there's no way I'm going to get in and I didn't. Um, but I just wanted to give it a go and, and experience what it was like to drop off a painting in person at my favorite museum in the country and kind of get to see the dark underbelly of, of the museum and experience that. Um, and then the second year I entered again, didn't think I would get in at all. Uh, and that was a portrait of Ollie Henderson And then when I came in, um, the curator had had put me right next to Nigel Milsom, who ended up winning. And it it was such an incredible time. I honestly walked in the room for the artist's lunch, holding Ollie's hand and shaking, because I was so nervous to meet all of these incredible artists who I just revered and looked up to so much. And now I feel so fortunate to, you know, call so many of them really dear friends of mine. Um, and, And because of that fear and anxiety that I felt that first year, now every year that I'm in, I just zero in on all of the new artists. And I say, hello, nice to meet you. Let me introduce you to 10 people. And I sort of start Networking on their behalf because I remember how, how scary it was that first time.
0: Oh, that's so generous of you. Oh, it was so fun. And so you don't, it doesn't, you don't feel jaded now, you know, when you go to the artist lunch or anything like that? No, oh
1: my gosh, because it's like a reunion with all of your <laughs> friends, you know, and and you get to meet incredible new artists as well. Um, so it's so much fun. I really, I do love it so much and certainly my, my focus has shifted now. I'm less sort of um, swept up in how many prizes am I going to get into and and I never ever think I'm going to win any of them, Um, but it's just more about, you know, finding new ways to showcase your work. Um, but now recently I've become represented just this year by, um, two galleries, which is Nanda Hobbs in Sydney and, uh, 33 Contemporary in Chicago. So wow. now I've sort of shifted that focus onto to exhibitions. Um, and then I'll do ad hoc group shows. Um, I've got two shows on in San Francisco right now, one in New York, in Ireland. So it's just, you know, it's been a really busy year. I think I've had 11 exhibitions this year, including a solo, my very first solo exhibition this year. So that was, that was difficult. That was wild. What an experience. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, so that my first solo was with Nanda Hobbs. And um, they really took a gamble on me because I, I'd been going to their openings quite a lot because so my, many of my um, mates exhibit with them. And I sort of approached them and said, Hey, look, I am not asking you to be represented. I would just love I have a show in mind. It's going to be queer portraiture. I know portraits are hard to sell. But it's in line with Sydney Mardi Gras. You know, I had a grant to create this this exhibition and I just wanted a great space with people that I could trust. Um, So they took a huge gamble on me, allowing me to do that. And um, it was so incredible to have that be part of the Mardi Gras festival and invite the queer community to come in and really take over that space um so it was so much fun and then um and then it ended up being
0: represented by them as a result which was great that's fabulous no they're a great gallery but and that was a really great show I loved it I saw the video of you talking about those those works in there and that's that brings me to you know the subject of your portraits which is there's a common theme with all of your sitters can you tell me a bit about that
1: yes basically I just Love queer people so much. <laughs> I'm obsessed with them. I want them around me all the time. They are around me all the time. Um, but you know, in historical art, queer people and and especially queer women and and non-binary queer people have really just been left out. Altogether. Mm. So, I really enjoy using sort of those historical norms of portraiture to upend our heterosexual norms of identity and sexuality and beauty uh, and, and finding new ways to use layers of abstraction and realism as a vernacular to convey you know, permutations of our identities across the spectrum of LGBTQIA+, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> <And> the list <laughs> yeah. goes on and on. Um, well, the great,
0: the great thing is you get to meet people that you might not ordinarily meet. I think that's one of the greatest things about portraiture. So you must be getting to meet so many people through your art.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's interesting because a majority of my paintings are of really close, dear friends of mine. I'm just you know, similarly to how I mentioned, I kind of enter the Archibald space and become a networker. (laughs) I'm just, I'm a person who likes to build community. So just organically, I've built this gigantic community of queer people across Sydney and Australia and sprinkled around the world. Um, But it does really help to um, have that kind of history of exhibitions and and um some really high profile people in my portraiture because then when I approach someone and say hey is it okay if I paint your portrait portrait they don't think I'm a crazy person um so yeah getting getting to paint Trixie Mattel was like that was my okay I can die happy moment and and now we're <laughs> friends so I'm like uh oh,
0: yeah so well good. Trixie Mattel is the um well Brian Fergus is the person behind Trixie Mattel, and Trixie Mattel is his alter ego uh, when he's a dra- when he's dressed in drag, which he he's amazing as well. And those you painted him as him as Brian Fergus and as Trixie Mattel, which is really really interesting. And both of those one one was an Archibald uh, finalist painting, the other one was in the Porsche Geich. Yeah, um, that that's a really interesting approach. Uh, did you know that you wanted to? Do those two portraits, or was it something that developed after you had painted him as Trixie Mattel? You know,
1: when I first approached Trixie, I just said, I just want to paint you, and I was obsessed with Trixie and obsessed with Brian, the kind of person behind Trixie. Um, because I just think, you know, the two are intertwined in a way. And yes, it's an alter ego, um, and it's a permutation of kind of how he or conveys himself as a female to the world in this sort of caricature of a caricature of a woman and sort of those idealized unrealistic standards of beauty. So I just, you know, and such a fabulous comedian and musician and everything. So I just said, I'll paint you in drag, out of drag, don't care. I know you're in Sydney. Can we make this happen? And I was shocked when he said, "Yeah, sure, no problem." So we um we met right before his one-woman show um at the Enmore Theater, and I was the most awkward, nervous, <laughs> ridiculous version of myself. It was mortifying. And I don't get I don't get nervous almost ever. So it it was emotionally jarring, but so much fun and such a rush. And then throughout the kind of creation of that portrait, I'm very, very collaborative with my sitters. So I want to know what colors are you most drawn to? Um, You know, Trixie picked out the pattern for um, the background of the Trixie portrait, the sort of pink floral inspired by um, a Barbie from her collection. And, um, yeah, it just became this sort of, you know, glorification, modification, objectification of everything that is Trixie. And I wanted to. It- to be campy and bright. And through that process, we got quite friendly and and a bit obsessed with each other. And then of course I was like, well, I'm gonna be in LA in a couple of days. So can we catch up and do a portrait out of drag? And Brian was like, of course, that's fine. And and I showed up to his house at like 9 a.m. He had just gotten out of the shower. He had like a towel in front of his junk. He was, (laughs) you know, we were very comfortable (laughs) with each other at that point. Um, But I I really love that portrait because, you know... Trixie has this really wonderful presence and confidence and Brian um, you know they're one and the same but Brian in that portrait is a little bit more demure you know the way he's holding his hands um, Mm. and the kind of way that he hunches his shoulders and I just think he's an incredibly beautiful human and wanted to capture that so a lot of time and love really went into that portrait, which is such a, a and, and that was last year's portrait. And that's such a very harsh dichotomy from the work that I put into this year's portrait, which I think took me, you know, maybe 20 hours tops and um, doesn't even have a face. <laughs>
0: Right. So your
1: self-portrait came out much quicker. So much faster. And I wasn't planning to enter it at all. Um, It was my gallery, Nanda Hobbs, actually suggested that I enter it. But, you know, post my solo exhibition, I was just so exhausted that I didn't think I would enter at all. And I just sort of said, yeah, if the the buyer doesn't mind, I'd love to just chuck it in there. There's no way it's going to get in because every couple of years I'll enter a nude or a semi-nude. Um, Because I'm really trying to break through with the, you know, semi nudes of women, and it never gets in. So I really didn't think this one would, especially because I'm wearing my harness, that's usually my strap on, on my back. And I'm like, there's, there's no way, there's no way. And there's no face, literally, there's no face in it. So I'm like, okay, if I'm using my sex harness on my back, and there's no face, and I painted it in almost no time at all. But then it got in, and I'm so happy that it did. yeah.
0: No, it's a great painting, and it's interesting because that painting, well, like a lot of your portraits, um, including Brian's portrait last year and a number of other portraits, you you uh, referred to the use of abstraction as well as realism, and those portraits are great examples of that. Often, these portraits have a very strong abstract background, but that abstraction creeps into the figure itself as well which is so interesting and I wanted to ask you a question that comes from one of my Instagram followers because I asked Instagram if they had any questions for you and they were saying how did you come to that approach in your work that that mixture of abstraction and realism
1: yeah so you know I have the ability to do not photorealism but I do have the ability to do pure realism but I found that I wasn't saying anything new with the images that I was creating when I would just go for pure realism um where there whereas there's other fantastic artists especially in Australia who I think find a way to tell a story and make you ask questions using realism. And I just don't have that talent. Um, so instead I sort of looked to, you know, the tenebrists I'm really drawn to Caravaggio and, and Tenebris the way that they paint on a dark surface and the light hits the figure and you're sort of only painting where the light hits. Mm. So I, I added the element. I think first I started with patterns, really brightly colored patterns instead of a, a dark background, and then started layering in abstraction because it's just so freeing and so much fun. Um, and you know, it's, it's interesting because I think Tenebris mixed with a bit of Kihinde Wiley, you know, that sort of pattern element and the nod to h- historical traditions of portraiture have sort of melded together. And, and now I'm I'm facing another kind of transformation where I'm starting to incorporate botanicals. I don't know if you can see the one behind me here. This is oh, my latest yeah, yeah, one. Yeah. Um, So I've got some monsteras in there and I'm going to start incorporating landscapes into the portraits as well. Landscapes are so
0: hard. Oh, let me tell you, I love your landscapes. Oh, I you. love it. I've I've seen so, because you have that again as with your portraits you've got that combination of the realism and the abstraction. Like for example in that painting wearong with pink and blue that was on your Instagram page, you've got this beautiful detailed tree like the upper half of the of the canvas is this detailed treetops and then in the center we've got this free abstraction of pink and indigo and yellow so why do you think landscapes are so hard oh
1: they just are (laughs) well I think because when I'm painting a human I'm just painting one human. You know, you're looking at the way that light is hitting different parts of their face. You're, you know, finding ways to mold the skin. You're you know where the light is hitting and where the abstraction should be or, or at least I do. Um but with a landscape, I think when I first started, I was treating every tree like an individual human. And every bush and every leaf. And it was driving me insane. So then I started to pull back and try and incorporate more abstraction. But I'm I'm still finding my voice with landscape, really. I think I've done six landscapes ever. uh, And the one that I've just finished must have taken, I don't know, 90 hours or maybe even 100 hours. It's just such painstaking work. And it's very soothing and I enjoy it. But in every creation process, I like a painting right at the beginning. Then in the middle, I hate it with a fiery passion. And then it starts to come together. And then there's just one tiny mark. Sometimes it's a freckle or it's just this little thing that brings it all together. But with the landscape, that middle ground, like I like it from the first five minutes. And then I hate it for like 80 hours.
0: And then it's just
1: the last, maybe the last two hours of creating it. And I'm like, this is actually really good. I should do another one of these, but I go years in between my landscapes because they are so time consuming and just, you know, and there's so many fabulous landscape artists out there that I'm like, what should I just give up? I don't know if I should even try it. but I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep experimenting. I just don't want to get pigeonholed into a certain style with my landscapes yet. Mm. I'm not ready to commit fully, um, but it's really, really fun um, to create. And, and right now I'm actually making some intentionally bad paintings, like really bad landscapes or really bad paintings from old bird illustrations or, you know, painting a floral bouquet and then covering it up. Um, so I'll do little cutout holes almost with with a solid color of paint over that, creating a pattern so you see little cutaways Um, And then I don't know what's going to happen next. I'll probably end up slapping a figure on there or doing some sort of line drawing thing. But it's just really, really exciting time to be experimenting again. Because I feel like for a while now, I've just been trying to master the style that, that I've committed to when it comes to portraiture. And now all of that's going out the window and I'm really enjoying trying new things.
0: Well, uh, you know, another interesting painting which, which must have been a new thing for you was that collaboration with Mark Etherington. Oh, my goodness. Was it? It's called Danger Zone. Yeah. I love that painting. Oh. Because actually your styles really, really blended really well together, I thought, because I I think so too. (laughs) Yeah, it it had a background that was very Mark Etherington with a volcano erupting and the, you know, Kermit the Frog in the clouds and all that sort of thing. But then you had one of your great figures, like a huge figure with a dinosaur head. It must have been so much fun. Can you tell me about that? Yes,
1: and we want to do a lot more collaborations, so keep an eye out on that. And he lives in Canada, so we yeah. basically I went and got a huge piece of canvas, asked him how big he wanted it to be and how big he could handle in his new studio in Canada. And then I drew out sort of generally where the dinosaur figure was going to be so that he I wouldn't end up painting over too much of what he was creating because you know he makes all of these great tiny details yeah I didn't want anything to get lost so then I sent him the essentially blank canvas with just the sketch on it he painted the background a bunch of dinosaurs the 7-eleven etc sent it back to me and then I started adding in I painted a a little mini version of him with a (laughs) A human head and a dinosaur body, drinking a Slurpee. And, oh, so that you know. was your
0: your contribution was that part. Oh, that's yeah, fabulous. Yeah, and, and I did
1: the big figure. I did some pterodactyls in the sky. So we, we both got, you know, elements across the entire thing. Um, but he's just, you know, he's one of my really dear friends. He's one of those people that, you know, I met in that first year that I got into the Archibald and we just became instantly connected um and you know he's he's painfully shy and and (laughs) such a wonderful human and then I'm just so boisterous and in your face so we're really we're a really funny combination but we just love each other so deeply and our brains have a similar type of humor
0: and um yeah it's just fun to do something new so yeah he's great do you find it liberating doing a collaboration do you find there's less pressure
1: absolutely well I don't really feel pressure um when I'm painting at all but I I just found it to be so freeing to just do something wacky and fun which is why I do dinosaur portraits you know every now and then just to do something silly um but yeah it's it's really enjoyable to just free up and do paint
0: completely different subject matter that's interesting you say you don't get you know you don't feel pressure because I always have this theory that making portraits is the highest pressure because you have to somehow show the sitter in the end, the painting. Yeah. How do you feel? How do you feel when you show the sitter? Do you, are you there when you show it to
1: them? Not always, not always, because sometimes they live in another country and we've done, I always do a sitting in person. So I've always flown there in the beginning and done sketches and, but we always, we always collaborate the whole way through. So they see it coming to life the whole way through, they see it at the bad, ugly stages. And I'm like, don't worry, it's going to look much better than this. Um, (laughs) you know, they'll tell me when, you know, their chin's a little bit off, or if their nose doesn't quite look like that. And sometimes it's interesting to see how people see themselves, Yeah, Um, but that collaborative process is just really fun. And, um, yeah, I, I really don't, don't feel any pressure i do want them to love it in the end and and i will say that you know my latest works probably my last 10 or 15 works have incorporated way less of the face and a lot less of the figure because i'm sort of starting my slow descent into abstraction because deep down i want to be an abstract artist that is my ultimate goal that's how i know i will have made it when i can create an abstract painting that i like But right now, oof, if I make an abstract painting, I hate it with a fiery passion until I get some element of, you know, figure
0: or landscape or something on there that isn't just abstract. Um, That's so interesting because what do you think it is about an abstract painting? Well, I mean, if you can answer this question, you would become an abstract painter, I suppose. But what 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 is it that you need to achieve for it to be successful? What is the test for that?
1: Yeah, I'm still trying to find that in my own work. But I know, you know, Robert Rauschenberg is my all time favorite artist, um, especially his purely abstract works. And he does incorporate a lot of imagery into so much of his work. But, you know, some of those in the San Francisco MoMA, I remember walking in there when I was like 16 or something. And it was the first portrait or first painting rather that... I ever stood in front of and was so moved that I had a full body experience. Um, and I discovered that I have synesthesia. So it's, it's this thing where you, um, you experience color or sound or whatever in a different way than most people do. And it elicits a physical response. So I have a bit of color synesthesia, so color can completely change my mood and it physically changes how I feel in my body, which is really hard to explain. But I remember seeing Robert Rauschenberg's um, painting for the first time And just being so deeply moved. And I stood in front of that for about 45 minutes. I kept getting super, super up close. The guards had to come and shoo me away. And then I'd go stand on way on the other side of the gallery, come back to it. And I was at the museum with my family. They actually left the museum Went to another museum nearby in San Francisco, and then came back to get me. And I was still sitting in the same spot, looking really looking at that Robert Rauschenberg. Yeah, I'm obsessed. And can you looking. describe
0: the painting for me?
1: Yeah, it's it's probably about six meters. It's huge, gigantic, gigantic painting. Um, it's got some assemblage. It's got some really thick texture you know, big, bold blocks of pink and red and cobalt blue, and then huge splashes of black and white. And, you know, it's, it's just this incredible, incredible, abstract piece of work that I just, I just don't understand how someone could make something so moving. And I know not everyone will be moved in the same way that I am by that work. Um, and, and I'm moved by almost all of his work in that same way. Um, but I want to find that in my own work. Because, you know, when I create a portrait... I don't stop until I find that it's telling me something new about my relationship to that person, about their relationship to me, to the world, to their gender, to their beauty, to their identity, um, and kind of find a way to sort of transform who they are into an object, you know, you're objectifying someone when you're when you're painting them and you're modifying them and you're glorifying them and you know it's the OMG combination
0: that I'm always always trying to to find. And I presume color is a huge part of that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I might meet someone And, and I'm trying to figure out what their color scheme is. And, and I'm just doing that based on my interpretation of them. So it's really interesting when I sit down for the actual sitting and start to do sketches and color sketches, um, and hearing them say, oh, I actually don't like the color purple or what, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, no shade against the color purple. Um, (laughs) but you... Yeah, it becomes this really collab process about how they see themselves and what colors they wear, what colors they surround themselves with, what colors they're really drawn to. Um, And inevitably, the portrait comes out completely different than the way I initially intended it to in my head. But I'm happy about that um, because it's, you know, it's it's a portrayal of them. And and if I'm
0: going to represent someone, I don't want it to be purely my interpretation of that. Well you know another very innovative thing that I found interesting that that you have done that I had never heard of before and I noticed it in particular with your Nanda Hobbs solo show but I don't know if you were doing it before that is this augmented reality that is used with an app can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah totally um I love technology. I'm
1: a huge nerd, <laughs> um, and I just wanted to. I just wanted to give it a go. You know what I mean? I just wanted to experiment with the ways that technology um, can interact with this kind of traditional medium and, and bring another element to life. So essentially, each painting has its own augmented reality that lives. On or around the painting, but you just can't see it with the naked eye. So, as soon as you bring your smartphone or tablet up and hold it up to the painting, you will see, you know, perhaps it's an interview with the subject or it's, you know, um, a short film or an animation or a time-lapse of the painting being created. Um, you know, it's every, each one of them are completely different. We've had, you know, I, I painted, my friend Lucy is a poet, so she read out some of her poems and then I have some of the words kind of in typewriter coming
0: across the, the painting as well. Um, but each one is just totally unique. It's interesting, isn't it? Because painting in a funny way it's so it, it's limited in certain ways because it's a 2D surface, it's not moving, it requires the viewer to stand in front of it for a period of time. It also requires the viewer to be active as well to sort of respond to what yeah. they're looking at. It's much less than, than, say, like a movie where you're just being, you're sort of receiving that. So it's interesting to add these other dimensions to this work. I find that fascinating and it's almost storytelling as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it and it's again so collaborative. Sometimes it is the sitter in their own voice telling their own story, which I think is very powerful. Um and and I'm so grateful to all of my sitters for extending that generosity to me. Um and I pay all of my sitters as well because I want to you know contribute to to their well-being and give back for everything that they've given me a lot of times it's my close friends and they say no i you won't you can't pay me but um, but I do try and some of them do accept it which is great yeah yeah <laughs>
0: One of the things that I think a lot of my listeners will be interested in, in and that is that you were um, have been one of the most high-profile artists that have been on Blue Thumb, which is the online gallery. Yeah. Um, and I've always been interested in that because it, I, I've, I've looked into Blue Thumb myself and sort of really found it really easy to navigate, and they've got so many great artists on there. What was your experience like Uh, Or has your experience been like?
1: Yeah, yeah. I love Blue Thumb. You know, they're Freddie, who um, I can never remember what his actual title is. I just call him the managing director, (laughs) even though he's definitely not the managing director. But I feel like he just does everything for Blue Thumb. And he's become a very dear friend of mine through just through the process of being an artist on Blue Thumb and the great opportunities that they have given me, even before I started to gain any notoriety um and you know i just think that they really care about their artists and they create really great opportunities for them and um you know for the longest time i've on- i'm only just now being represented in the last you know 12 months or 6 months really um, and up until this point, I've been selling my own work. And I've been doing that either through my own website or Instagram or through websites like Blue Thumb. Um And it's just a really no-brainer, easy way to upload your art, share it with the world and, and connect with a, a new community of collectors. Uh, and I really didn't buy into the whole being represented by a gallery thing, but Seeing the way that um, I guess some of my friends have experienced the the representation uh, from Nanda Hobbs, I knew it was a positive experience, and I was willing to sort of give it a go. And I'm really glad that I did because it's a great symbiotic relationship, um, and I'm still able to you know show through blue thumb and Sachi art and and all of those things. It's just that. A lot of my work is now being created specifically for a gallery show, so I have less to be able to put up on those kinds of online platforms.
0: And I think also, I think you put your finger on it before as well, for portraitists or for painters who primarily paint in portraits, it is very difficult to sort of have an exhibition.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I it hasn't been my experience. Like, I, I've, you know, had a career all this time creating portraits, but... Mm. Um, I can see how it can be very difficult, and and there are certain portraits that I paint that I know it's gonna take a while. Like I had a portrait of my friend Shan, who's a you know fabulous non-binary musician who lives in Melbourne, and I painted them with their hand down their underwear, um, and then oh, topless yeah. with you know a hand up in the air and. Um, you know, armpit hair coming out. And I'm like, I just know. And it's a gigantic painting. I'm like, I know this will take forever to sell, but I know the right person's going to find it. And then this wonderful um, queer woman in California ended up purchasing it and absolutely loves it. So you know, you just sort of know that certain subject matter is going to take a while to find the right home.
0: Yeah, that's a great painting. On that on that um, on that topic of scale, do you tend to paint life size or do you have a preference of what scale you would use for a portrait? Oh, if I
1: could, I would paint gigantic paintings. I am limited by (laughs) space at the moment. Um, But I'm going to try and not let that be a limitation in the coming years. Um, But I do love to paint, you know, a few meters tall. That's my favorite because just the gestures and the movement and the way that you can zoom into the detail of Mm. someone's features is so much greater. Um but you know I I do like to do a bit of a range because I ultimately I want people to have my art in their homes and to care about it and love it and not everyone can have a gigantic painting in their home um and it's fun to explore different sizes but I'm I'm really looking forward to doing some gigantic paintings in the future
0: so would you do that I suppose you'd do that on already stretched canvases. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. And they wouldn't even fit through my door, the size that I'm thinking, but, um, my mate Black Douglas has an awesome studio in Merrickville. So I might just see if I can come spend some time in his big old studio and create a couple of things. I've Um, heard about
0: that studio. I have to go and have a look at it. Oh, it is fantastic fabulous well I think there's a bar isn't there in there
1: oh yeah (laughs) there's a bar there's couches there's a dance floor there's a stage we've had some
0: good times in that studio (laughs) oh I bet you're looking (laughs) looking forward to you know post lockdown I bet you have a big party in there if ever we're allowed to have more than five people in our houses again I know when I heard you talk about preparing for the Trixie Mattel portrait. I think you said you'd started with a digital sketch. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, always. Oh, so you always start with a digital sketch? Would that be on an iPad? How do you do that? Yeah, yeah. So I, I used to sketch on paper, but paper gets
1: lost and you know it, the scale and size and it's harder to make make up for little mistakes here and there so i once i got an ipad it completely changed the way that i do the initial sitting, so I'll get my iPad out, I do an initial sketch or drawing um, with my Apple Pencil, and then I'll get the you know brushes out and start to do color sketching on my iPad and different layering and sort of bring it to life that way. And then I'll pretty much plan out most of the portrait digitally, but still allow for that freedom that just happens when you start putting paint to canvas. Um, but it is definitely my preferred method of sketching. And then as I am creating the portrait on canvas, I'll take pictures with my iPhone, send them to my Mac and then overlay the painting, um, over some of my reference photos that I also take during my sittings just to see how close I'm measuring up to real life. Um, yeah. and I'm not trying to emulate exactly what they look like in real life. Cause again, got that brain trying to head towards abstraction. But I do want to make sure that I'm getting sort of on the right track. Um, And it's also really fun, you know, I'll take pictures of the painting in progress, send them to my iPad, and then do digital sketching over my photo of my painting on canvas, so that I can experiment with new things and say, okay, am I going to ruin this painting if I do this gigantic line or add this new you know color here or there yeah so it's a really good way to experiment
0: without necessarily applying paint to canvas just yet also with color it's a great way to experiment as well it's it's really fantastic actually that's interesting too because it's sort of a link to my other question that I often ask artists about how what tricks they have to see the painting with fresh eyes do you have any other methods you would do that I turn the painting upside down a lot. Yeah, yeah, right.
1: So I will just literally turn it on its head and, um, and it just helps you see form and color and light and not think about the fact that you're painting a person or a landscape or whatever it might be. Um, but instead just thinking about form and, and pure color and shading. So that's another great trick. Or I'll just walk away from it. I'll close my studio door, and I won't look at it for a couple of days, and that, that really, really helps. Um, and I used to, in my old place just down the street, my um, closet doors were mirrors, so it was really handy to look at it
0: in the mirror and see a reverse of the image as well that's a really great way of doing it yeah and um and you've basically painting in oils most of the time yeah i used to paint in acrylic um,
1: but for environmental reasons i've let that go because you know acrylic has a lot of plastics in it and polymer and you know when you dilute that into water and pour it down your sink it's it's going into the ocean eventually and it's polluting everything so as much as i love 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 acrylic because it's so convenient and it dries so quickly that's just one of those things that I decided I needed to give up. Whereas oil paint, you know, you, um, you know, you have your mineral spirits, you're getting all of the excess paint off of there. And then as that settles to the bottom, I will mix the, uh, pour out the mineral spirits into a new jar and then take all of that sediment at the bottom of the jar and mix it with linseed oil and just create more oil paint. Um, So it really becomes no waste. Oh, really? Yeah. So some of my favorite colors that I paint with are an amalgamation of hundreds of colors that I've been cleaning off of my brush. And it becomes something that you would never take the time to mix because it's just so many different
0: colors combined. So it must be quite a gray, a gray color, I presume.
1: Not always, it depends on what I've been painting. Like sometimes it's this really beautiful neutral pink color, or like a dusty. Um, sort of ochre color. They're, they're all quite different. It just depends on what I've been painting on any given day. Yeah, um, right. But Gamblin um, is a great paint com- company and they clear out, clean out all of the dust and all of the sediment um, once a year from all of their machines as they're making oil. And they mix that into a color called torrid gray. And every year that torrid gray is going to be different because they have different supply and demand for all of their colors. Um, So it's really great to get your hands on a Torrit gray. And if anyone has any Torrit gray who's listening, please reach out to me on Instagram or my email or whatever, because I want it. <laughs> I only have one Torrit gray from like five years ago, and I can't find any of it
0: anywhere. So please, please send it to me. <laughs> so how how do you spell that? How is, it tar- is Torrit Torrit gray? T O R R I T.
1: And they give it away for free. So you don't, you can't buy it. It's just anywhere that sells gambling will be sent um, toric gray and it's just free tubes. So it's, yeah, it's
0: a great, I think it's just a great little thing that they do. Yeah, brilliant. I've never heard of it before. And tell me what, um, I always like asking um, artists how they get into the flow for painting, whether they procrastinate, whether they find it hard to get into it. How do you find your work when you get into the studio? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm a Capricorn, so there is zero procrastination happening in this <laughs> studio. <laughs> I actually, um, getting into zodiac signs or horoscopes has been a COVID hobby of mine. This happened last lockdown. I started learning more about what it meant to be a Capricorn. And then during this lockdown, I'm learning more about what it means to be all of the other star signs. Um, but I'm still a novice for sure. But one thing I know about Capricorns is that they're very career driven. They're very organized and they do not procrastinate. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, apparently, <laughs> apparently. I'm apparently I'm a standard Capricorn, which also explains my accounting brain mixed with the artist brain. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess on a painting day, I will, I will wake up and be like, okay, today is definitely a day to create some artwork. And I'll go into the studio before I've even peed or brushed my teeth or eaten anything. And I'll just start working. And eventually it builds up so much that I actually have to go and get ready for the day and come back. Um, But I get into this sort of flow state. It's a very Zen state. um, And I don't realize that I'm painting. Um, And it happens with drawing too. Actually, I don't really draw anymore other than a sketch. Um, But the other day I did a drawing of my friend Georgia and I was getting into it so much so that Um, I got a message being like, oh, are you done with it yet? And it had been four and a half hours and I had no idea that that time had gone by. Um, so I, you know, I can go for four, five, six, seven, eight hours. Um, and when I was getting ready for my solo show, I was doing 16 hour painting days with no breaks, oh, you're just kidding. quickly, like shove something in my mouth quickly. Well, I mean, yeah, it was, I, I wouldn't recommend that. That was definitely pushing myself really hard, but, um, on a typical day, eight to 10 hours, probably. Yeah. And do you find you have to have, um, natural light in the studio? Absolutely. Yes. So natural light is so so important and natural light's really important to me during the sitting as well. Um so I really need to have certain times of day uninterrupted set natural light that isn't directly on the sitter. Um, And similarly, I have pretty good light in my studio, but I also have um, a light bulb. It's a a smart light bulb, so it connects to my iPhone. And then I can essentially change it to any color in the rainbow. So I have it set to a really blue, cool light that emulates sunlight. That way, when the sun goes down earlier during the winter, for example, I can still paint until... 2 or 3 a.m., which is great. Oh, so when you say it's attached to your phone... But how do you do that? Yeah, so essentially, um, you just go onto an app on your phone um, called LifeX, but there are different brands like Philips, etc. cetera. Um, and then you have a little color palette and you can just select whatever color you want. So I've got one in my living room as well, and it's set to this nice, beautiful pink color. And as someone with synesthesia, if I'm having a really hard day and I need to turn my day around, I will go in there and just start messing with color until I feel better. Really? Um, but it's, yeah, it's really interesting. And you can set it up so that if you get a text message, the light flashes at you, or you can set it so that, um, as the sun comes up, even if all of your shutters are closed, as the sun comes up, the bulb will slowly brighten from, you know, dark tones up into a warmer color until you're at full daylight wow. in your room. It's, That's amazing. Yeah. All kinds of great things you can do with technology. yeah <laughs> right.
0: and so what with with that um, experience of synesthesia, what colour makes you feel the best? I mean, what what is an uplifting a mood lifter for you?
1: Um, cadmium chartreuse is like my all time fave right now. So that super fluoro green color, like a yellow green that you see on people's fluoro vests, sort of. Right. Um, it's one of my favorite colors to paint with right now. And it just gives me this zing of energy um and it's really uplifting if i want to feel calm and happy um a nice kind of warm neutral pink will do that um some of the like purples and dusty lavenders um are are my favorite i know you know ben quilty uses a little that color a lot in his work yeah. which i think is a reason that i'm so Drawn into his stuff as well. Um, and yeah, there, there are so many. I could list a thousand colors that I'm obsessed with, but those are probably the ones that stand out the most.
0: And would you find when you use them in your work, you would need to mix them, or are there some that you could use straight from the tube?
1: Usually I like to mix my colors just because I, I find so much joy in creating new combinations that I know won't be emulated by another artist because it's coming straight from the tube, but um, cadmium chartreuse, never touch it. I never touch (laughs) it. It is pure. It is beautiful. It is perfect. And it doesn't need anything else added to it.
0: (laughs) I have seen it in your work and it is very stunning. Yeah. Yeah. Would you use that in your landscapes as well? I do, yeah. I think I have seen it in your landscapes. Yeah, I
1: do. It's interesting, though, because in my portraits, it's going to be a big block of colour or it's going to be a harsh line so you can really distinctly see it versus in my landscapes, it's
0: just a few little leaves here and there. And do you find with the abstraction that it's the proportion of colour that is important, that, you know, that is an important part of it? getting the balance between colors, right?
1: Absolutely. And it takes some time, you know, I'll I'll get a sense of it in the sketching phase, but once you get canvas, uh, paint on the canvas, it's going to behave very differently to a backlit screen. So, um, it takes a lot of time to mix the right colors. It takes a lot of time to find that balance. And I have to paint the whole thing all at once. Um, so, you know, when I'm painting someone's, skin tones, I have to get the darks and the lights and everything sort of blocked in all at once so that I know what I'm working with because that can completely throw off how you perceive the colors in the abstract elements as well. So it's yeah. a constant push and pull. Um, and then in the end, like the very late stages of my paintings, I always bring in glazes as well, because I want to glaze over the skin or different parts of the skin with very subtle tones that are coming from the abstract elements surrounding that skin. So it really becomes part of the portrait.
0: Yes, I could imagine that. That must be a key to why they're so successful. They are really beautiful works. Oh, Thank you. Um, and so what have we, what have you got coming up in the, in the year ahead? I mean, I know it's COVID affected as well because there's so much uncertainty at the moment, but it sounds like you're absolutely firing at the moment. Uh, is there <laughs> any, any shows scheduled? Yes, um, I have a solo pop-up show
1: in Chicago, so I'm working on that right now. Um, And they're being really wonderful and just letting me experiment and try new things. So taking a little bit of a risk on me, but I think because it's COVID and because it's just going to be a pop-up show, it lends itself to that experimentation. Um, And then I have another show at Nanda Hobbs next year. They want me to do a landscape show, but that might (laughs) take years
0: to complete. (laughs) You must. Ralph's always got really good ideas.
1: He does. He does. But I, oh God, it's so Difficult. They're so hard to do, <laughs> and then I have my friends teasing me for doing landscapes. Like Leslie Rice always calls me like Bob Carlos Bob Ross because I'm <laughs> oh, Jesse.
0: Yeah, it's funny seeing me try and do landscapes. So he likes to make fun of me. <laughs> oh, now that's right. That was a question I forgot to ask you. So why is the Instagram? Why is your Instagram username Carlos Bob?
1: Oh, gosh, who knows? Who knows? It's just, uh, I don't know. It's a name that I made up. When I was little, it was just, you know, my first username on all of my social media. And then I thought about changing it and was like, No, I don't think I will. I think I'm just gonna leave it. Um, similarly to how Mark Etherington's is huge skull. We're like, we're just, yeah. we're just being dags. <laughs> we're just being silly. Um, I thought about it could be my like drag king name as well. Cause I like to, I've done, um, drag a couple of times as a drag king, but I think my drag name is Max Thunderlake. So we'll keep <laughs> Max Thunderlake for the drag scene. We'll keep Carlos Bob for the art scene. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really funny if I get like recognized out in the world, which I also hate. I feel so weird when people are like, oh my God, are you Kim Lutweiler? Um, but sometimes people say, are you Carlos Bob? And I just start laughing. <laughs> it's like, yes, yes, I am. Uh, it's so funny. It's weird. Like, I I don't have any photos of myself on my social media. I literally have one photo of myself on my social media. So I don't know how people know what I look like, but they do. Yeah. It really throws me off because I want them to love my work but i want to sort of remain anonymous but i guess in this day and age that's no, nearly impossible i think it's so, impossible now so it goes but i'm also happy to meet people
0: yeah. yeah well you can't put the genie back in the bottle now kim uh but uh i love that username i think it's fantastic actually and you've got a great surname Lutwiler. i mean that you know they get past the carlos bob and then they get to the Lutwiler, and then see the intrigue <laughs> continues <laughs> anyway Kim it has been such a delight speaking to you today and you know what I can't wait for I can't wait until you become a completely abstract artist because that is going to be really exciting as well and so I've really enjoyed this conversation thanks so much thank you so much for having me it has been
1: a long time dream of mine to be on here so I'm really glad that you invited me on
0: I appreciate it so much What a great artist. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kim Lutweiler as much as I did. You can go to the website for links to things we talked about in this episode and I'll also be getting a short video online in a few weeks, so watch out for that on the Talking With Painters YouTube channel and the website and on social media. You can also subscribe to the YouTube channel for free as well as subscribing to the podcast and you can also follow the show on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters.
1: Yeah, my brain sort of works within that juxtaposition. Like, I definitely have a a business mind, and I love the administrative side and the business side of being an artist. Um but I just have so much passion for creating work and showing it to the world and kind of discovering new ways to convey my thoughts and, and feelings. So yeah, it's it's an interesting combination. <laughs>